we're going to, um, well, the entire study, we didn't do this last Wednesday night because uh, I didn't want to, uh, but from, from here on out for the, uh, the rest of it, the way, it, how many of you have read the book Agents of the Apocalypse? So th- that was going to be my assumption. There was a handful of you that have read it. Um, and so that's fine. What the, how the book was written or is written, if you read it, is that um, every chapter, there is a section at the first of the chapter that is a, f- a fictional story. And so you're going to read, if you read the book, you're going to read a fictional story. Um, that can, the, the story continues through the whole book. Um, and you get a portion of it each chapter. And then at the end of that fictional story, then you would read the rest of the chapter is where in Scripture that you would pull that fictional story from. Does that make sense? And so it's the Scripture behind the story. Um, and um, I am an, an auditory learner. And so a couple years ago when I read this book, I got, got the, the CDs and listened to it, um, and it really brought, brought it to life to me, uh, and so hopefully it'll do the same for you. So to, but tonight, so what we're going to do each Wednesday night from here on out as we go through the study is we're going to listen uh, to the reading of that first part of the chapter, which is, as I said, a, a fictional story that, that uh, follows Scripture, okay? But it's an official story of what could take place during the end times. Um, most of the time it's not as long as it is tonight, all right? So tonight it's 30 minutes, so I'm just preparing you. It's, I think it's just under 30 minutes. And then after the reading of that, after we listen to it, then I'll get up. We're going to go through the outline and show you in Scripture what the fictional story was talking about, all right? So I think it, at least for me it helped kind of bring, uh, as I mentioned last week, I'm not necessarily a great student of end times prophecy, but it really helped me, and so hopefully it'll, it'll kind of bring it to life to you as well. So Dave's going to go ahead and start uh, that CD. You might want to jot notes down if you want uh, on your outline, and then we'll go through the outline. Chapter 2, The Martyrs. It was after 10 o'clock on Sunday morning when Daniel Goldman, an up-and-coming attorney in a Turin, Italy law firm, finally rolled out of bed. He poured his cup of wake-up coffee, eased into his recliner, and flipped on the TV. He had nothing to do before Rachel got out of church. They would eat lunch at their favorite restaurant afterward. Rachel Elin. Daniel warmed at the thought of her name. He had met the raven-haired beauty at a bar mitzvah five months earlier. Their attraction had been immediate and mutual, and as love blossomed, they began to talk of marriage. A woman in the marketing firm where Rachel worked had invited her to a Christian gathering, and within a few weeks, she had become a Christian. This morning was her second time to attend the little church. Her conversion did not bother Daniel. As far as he was concerned, she could follow whichever religion made her feel good, or none at all. He had quit attending a synagogue the day he left for college, and his only connection with his parents' Jewish faith was an occasional wedding or bar mitzvah. A news flash snapped Daniel out of his reverie. According to chaotic reports from around the world, thousands of people had suddenly vanished. People had disappeared from workstations, cars, airplanes, ships, and military stations, causing widespread devastation. Cars had crashed. Planes had plunged to the ground. Gas plants had exploded. Cities were darkened by massive power outages. Daniel watched 
incredulous, as casualty estimates rose into the millions. Before long, the panicked news anchor announced something strange. From the reports we have so far, it appears that all who have vanished were professing Christians. Here in our studio, we have retired Pastor Marco Conti to make some sense out of this. The former clergyman explained the Christian belief called the rapture, which maintained that all Christians would be taken into heaven so they would be spared the political and natural upheavals that would precede the second coming of Christ. Do you think this is what has happened? the anchor asked. Of course not, Marco chuckled and shook his head. Enlightened Christians today see all biblical miracles, including virgin births, resurrections, and prophecies as myths intended to convey larger truths, such as humanity's ability to find spiritual life within. Yet it seems that all who have disappeared were practicing Christians. Well, not all, the pastor said with a smile. I'm still here. Daniel looked at his watch. It was time for Rachel to be out of church. He called her cell phone. No response. He kept calling for the next half hour. Finally, he drove to the little church building. Cars, including Rachel's, were still in the parking lot. He stepped inside the open door. The pews were empty, but a half dozen men and women stood around, looking dazed. What's happening? Daniel asked. Look at the pews, a woman replied her voice breaking. The benches were strewn with Bibles, bulletins, and purses. Daniel searched until he found a lavender-colored Bible he recognized as Rachel's. He slumped to the floor, barely realizing that the sobs he was hearing were his own. Daniel remained in a stupor for days. He plodded about his life mechanically performing his duties at the law firm without his usual enthusiasm and creativity. The firm itself was in turmoil, having lost 14 of its 50-plus employees in the cataclysmic disappearance. The increased workload significantly stretched the remaining attorneys and their staffs. Daniel, however, was grateful for the distraction of overtime. The first nation to recover its balance was Great Britain. The architect of the recovery was their brilliant Prime Minister, Judas Christopher, who identified the most urgent problems and formed teams to conscript workers for cleanup and reconstruction and to fill critical vacated positions. Within weeks, although people were still reeling, Britain was back on its feet as a functioning society. Other European nations did not fare so well, and many countries were sinking deeper into chaos with each passing week. Most of Europe's leaders pleaded with the British hero to bring order to their own devastated nations. Prime Minister Christopher graciously offered his help, and slowly but steadily, Europe regained its footing. In the evenings, Daniel watched the aftermath unfold on TV while he worked. The British Prime Minister appeared often, always displaying confidence and an air of concern. But something about him made Daniel's skin crawl. He sensed that the man's charm was a facade and that his eyes were on something far beyond helping people who were struggling. Daniel knew from various blogs he'd read that Christopher had demanded a fair amount of internal control from those desperate nations in exchange for his leadership. One day, when Daniel was at work, his phone rang. I need to see you in my office. It was the firm's senior partner. 
As Daniel entered, his boss couldn't look him in the eye, and his fingers fiddled compulsively with a pencil. Daniel, he said, his eyes still averted, I have to let you go. Daniel tried to absorb the blow. Why? What have I done wrong? You've done nothing wrong. You've been loyal. Your work has been impeccable, and you have consistently taken on additional responsibilities. But, but we all know the firm is shorthanded after the big disappearance. You've been desperately trying to recruit new lawyers, so why are you firing me? I'm not at liberty to say. Please don't ask questions. It will do no good. But I am giving you a generous severance package. It has already been deposited to your account. Still reeling, Daniel returned to his desk and boxed up his belongings. Stunned though he was, the young lawyer had no doubt he would find another job quickly. All the law firms in Turin had been desperate for attorneys since the mass disappearance. In the next few weeks, Daniel submitted his resume to every firm in the city. They all turned him down. One evening, after a month of hitting dead ends, he sank deep into his recliner, wondering what he would do next. He had plenty of money. He had quite a bit saved even before the severance package. But it wouldn't last forever. The phone rang. Daniel Goldman? The voice was familiar, but Daniel couldn't place it right away. Matthew Perlman here. Matthew, my old friend. I haven't seen you in ages. How in the world are you? Not bad. I just heard that you've been fired. Join the club. Not you, too. But you were a partner in your firm. Yeah, it didn't matter. We're all being fired, Daniel. Daniel didn't know where Matthew was going with this, and there was a moment of awkward silence. Care to have coffee? Matthew asked. We need to talk. In person. Once they were tucked away at a remote table in the local cafe, Matthew wasted no time. This is Judas Christopher's doing. We've learned that he is anti-Semitic down to the morrow. He has forced our own gutless premier to get rid of all the Jews in Italy. But why? Firing us is just his first step. Jews in other Italian cities are quietly being rounded up and shipped away on trains. We don't know where they're being taken, but no one has returned. We've just learned that Turin is next, and the purge could begin at any moment. Who is this we you keep referring to? An underground network organized to help Jews in this crisis, Matthew leaned toward Daniel. We have set up a secret headquarters in the basement of an abandoned factory building. We call it The Exchange. We're linked to exchanges in other cities through a communication network that gathers information to help Jews escape into France. You need to come see us. Matthew gave Daniel a pointed look. Come tonight. There may not be much time. That night, following Matthew's instructions, Daniel went to the exchange. He parked his car three blocks away and walked to the old warehouse. Like a burglar about to break into a house, he looked in all directions before entering the alley between the last standing wall of the building and the equally damaged factory adjacent to it. Once inside, he descended the stairwell to the basement and knocked softly on the metal door. He was admitted immediately into a space that had formerly been the warehouse locker room and recreation area. Matthew greeted him with a broad smile. 
Eighteen or twenty others, both men and women, sat at mismatched desks around the room. Matthew sat Daniel in a chair that looked like a Salvation Army reject, and, after introducing him to his associates, he got straight to the point. As I told you, we collectively run an underground operation to help Jews anywhere flee from Judas Christopher's purge. We also have another purpose. We are all Messianic Jews, which is another name for Christians who... You? A Christian? Daniel was incredulous. But you were always such a staunch Jew. The big disappearance forced me to do some serious soul-searching, he said. And since my conversion, I have joined these brothers and sisters in devoting ourselves not only to saving our fellow Jews' lives, but also to saving their souls. Why would you want to become a Christian now? Well, I didn't know much about Christianity before, but the fact that only Christians were taken in the rapture got my attention. I knew that had to mean something. So I got a Christian Bible with a commentary and learned that all this had been predicted. The more I studied, the more I realized that Christianity is actually a fulfillment of Judaism. So I became a believer in the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And what about these other people working with you? Daniel asked. How were they converted? The rapture opened their minds to Christianity, just as it did for me. Our paths crossed through various circumstances, and we've been getting together to share what we're learning. Matthew's face glowed as if lit by some inner fire. You are really into this, Daniel said. Yes, it's been revealed to me that I am one of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists throughout the world who have been called to bring people to belief in our Messiah. Daniel rolled his eyes. Come on, Matthew, how can you possibly know all this? Matthew was ready for the question. He took his Bible, only weeks old, but already showing signs of wear, and pointed to passage after passage, explaining how Jesus' coming made sense of hundreds of prophecies from the Hebrew Scriptures. He went on to show passages from the New Testament that explained the current disturbing events and horrors looming on the horizon and his mission. Matthew closed his Bible and looked gravely at his friend. Daniel, you can see that the death and resurrection of our Messiah, as well as everything we're experiencing now, was prophesied in this book. Now I urge you to do two things. I'm listening. First, I beg you to turn to our Messiah before it's too late. Second, you need to get out of Italy immediately. Daniel was ready on both counts. Matthew took him to an adjacent room, where he opened the book of Romans and explained the gospel to him in greater detail. Daniel committed his life to follow Christ, knowing full well that the cost could be steep. But now that he understood the sacrifice Jesus had made on his behalf, he was willing to lay down everything, even his life if necessary. Matthew explained that first thing in the morning, Daniel was to go to the bank and withdraw all his savings. Soon after he returned home, a FedEx truck would pick him up. He was to take only one suitcase, and he would be driven directly to the sister exchange in Grenoble, France, along with other Jewish refugees. Yet another shock awaited Daniel at his bank the next day. The government had already confiscated every euro he had. The gravity of the situation was really starting to sink in now. He rushed home, 
locked the doors, and shuttered all the windows. As he stuffed his suitcase, he heard a furious pounding at the door. Peering through a slit in the blinds, he saw five armed men in Italian military uniforms. The knock came again, loud enough to rattle the windows this time. Daniel grabbed his suitcase and headed for the back door. He heard the front door shatter, followed by the stomping of heavy boots. At that moment, shouts and pounding erupted at the back door. He turned and bounded down the basement stairway. Just as his pursuers clambered into the basement, he managed to shatter one of the narrow windows just above ground level and wriggle out, leaving his suitcase behind. Daniel ran down the alley behind the houses in his neighborhood. He could hear the soldiers shouting behind him, but they were too far back to see him. Soon, he was gasping for breath and his knees were buckling. He knew he wouldn't be able to run much longer. He rounded a corner and almost collided with a garbage can. He crawled inside and pulled the lid over him. Moments later, the soldiers rushed by, cursing and bellowing. Trembling with terror, Daniel remained there for more than an hour before he dared to take out his cell phone. He called Matthew and explained what had happened. Whatever you do, don't come here, Matthew's voice was tense. They're on to us, and we've scattered. Jews all over the country are being caught and shipped to gas chambers modeled after those in Auschwitz and Dachau. We're all in grave danger. You must get to France immediately, but not by the highway. You'll have to walk across the countryside at night. As soon as dusk fell, Daniel Goldman began his westward trek toward France, creeping through fields and woods under cover of darkness. Obstacle after obstacle slowed him down. Barking dogs, fences, creeks, and farms to be skirted. At one point, he fell into an unseen ravine, and a farmer nearby must have heard him because several shots were fired in his direction. He managed to escape unscathed, but hunger continued to stalk him. He snatched corn from the fields and fruit from wooded areas whenever he could, but it was barely enough to keep him going. Finally, after four long nights, he had covered the 30-plus miles to the border. He made his way over the Alps through a gap near the highway and reached France just as the sun rose behind him. It was now safe for him to hitchhike, and following his friend's instructions, Daniel found the sister exchange the Jews had set up there. The Grenoble exchange fed and housed Daniel until he secured a position with a local law firm. He worked in relative safety for three years, donating much of his salary to the exchange and volunteering for them in the evenings. He continued to grow in his faith, meeting with fellow members of the exchange in the evenings to study scripture and discuss how to apply it to their lives. One by one, the prophesied disasters Matthew had pointed out to Daniel in his Bible began to materialize. Countries around the world endured a marked increase in droughts, water contamination, and infectious epidemics. A massive earthquake devastated several nations, killing millions of people. Ominous signs also appeared on the political front. All the countries in Europe united their government and military forces, which meant that France was no longer safe for Jews. Daniel was fired again, but this time he was better prepared having stashed his savings in his apartment rather than at a bank. Daniel knew that a job search would be futile, so he joined the Jewish underground at the Grenoble Exchange. Smuggling Jews across borders was now pointless because no country was free from persecution. 
Yet the exchange continued its mission to help Jews. They concentrated their efforts on conversion and built a network of underground churches. In the ensuing months, the entire world became a cauldron of misery and death. Crops failed. Diseases ran rampant. Food became scarce and exorbitantly expensive, and violence erupted over food rations. People in every nation were dying of starvation on a daily basis. Yet these horrors produced one positive effect. They brought startling success to Daniel and the Messianic Jews of the exchange. Some people were beginning to see the futility of depending on their own efforts and turning their eyes upward for help and hope. Judas Christopher's iron fist now gripped virtually all of the civilized world. Not long after he became the leader of the United European Nations, he demanded that every person on earth acknowledge him as their god. To enforce compliance, he decreed that no one would be allowed to buy or sell any commodity, including food, clothing, and shelter, without a government-issued number. And no number would be issued to anyone who refused to worship him. On the night following the decree, the Jews who ran the Grenoble Exchange met to address this new crisis. This Antichrist, Judas Christopher, has just pronounced a death sentence on all worshippers of the one true God, one member said. The question is, what can we do about it? Someone else asked. Whatever we do, Daniel responded, we cannot bow before this monstrous beast. That would be our eternal death sentence. You're right, but I don't see a solution. Death seems inevitable for us all. Not necessarily, another member replied. We can hide in the wilderness or in buildings that were abandoned after the rapture. We can feed ourselves by hunting and foraging. There's also a growing number of Gentiles who detest Christopher's tyranny, Daniel added. No doubt many of them would be willing to offer us shelter. Is it really necessary that we refuse the assigned number? Someone asked. Under ordinary circumstances, of course, we should not compromise, but... What we are facing now is far from ordinary. It's literally a matter of life and death. Would it really be wrong to accept the number just to survive while in our hearts we retain our allegiance to the true God? You make a good point, another member said. Even the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that they could freely eat food that had been offered to idols. Don't ask questions, he said. Just do it. Those idols are not real gods, and you know that all food comes from the true God. But he also said not to eat such food when others knew it had been offered to idols, Daniel said. The light we shine to others is critical. That's one reason so many martyrs were willing to die. They would not deny their Lord just to save their own necks. Amen, the chorus of voices echoed through the room. We must model for others the courage these ancient martyrs modeled for us. The meeting ended with the adoption of a strongly worded resolution to reject the government-issued numbers and to encourage all Messianic Jews to do the same. The group formed several task forces. Some located dwelling places where Jews could hide. Others sought out Gentiles known to be sympathetic to the persecuted Jews. Still others devised methods for distributing donated food and clothing. 
It was not an exaggeration to say that this new decree amounted to a death sentence for anyone who would not declare their allegiance to Judas Christopher. Although some families managed to survive eking out a living from forest game, edible plants, and occasional bundles of goods smuggled to their hiding places, the threat was imminent. Jewish Christians were hunted down, tortured, and killed. They were impaled, stretched on racks, flogged to death, fed to wild animals, burned at the stake, beheaded, hurled from cliffs, dismembered, or flayed alive. But in the midst of the bloodbath, the exchange continued its ministry, the members pouring their energy into converting, feeding, housing, and hiding the beleaguered Jews whenever possible. Late one night, Daniel sat at a large table with 20 other exchange leaders. They were meeting to arrange shelter for a recently uprooted Jewish man who now sat among them. He had just lost his home and his wife to the persecution. His seven-year-old daughter sat on his lap, her eyes wide with terror. Suddenly, the door burst open, and the man who had been standing guard rushed in, slamming and bolting the door behind him. They're here! They've found us! Immediately, everyone headed for the escape tunnel. Within moments, the door splintered, and Christopher's troops rushed in. The Jews emerged from the escape door and scattered as they dashed toward the nearby woods. Five members of their group were caught immediately, but Daniel and the others made it into the forest. Gunshots crackled behind them, followed by the scream of the little girl. Daniel stopped short and then turned back, leaving the protective cover of the trees. The girl's father lay motionless on the ground. The girl fell to her knees beside him, shrieking in terror. A soldier reached down and grabbed her long hair. Daniel didn't take time to think. He plowed headlong into the soldier, bowling him to the ground, and then scooped up the girl and ran back into the woods. Three soldiers came barreling behind him. With the girl in his arms, Daniel knew he couldn't outdistance his pursuers. He stopped and set her down. Run for it, he whispered urgently. Go as far into the woods as you can. There's a family that will take you in, hiding in a hut. The girl stood frozen until Daniel turned her around and shoved her forward. Run, he barked. The girl obeyed, and Daniel turned to keep the soldiers from following. The scuffle lasted only seconds before a rifle butt smashed into his head, and he fell to the dirt, unconscious. Daniel awakened in a filthy prison, his head throbbing. A score of other prisoners were packed into the cell. Next to him sat three fellow workers from the exchange. Did any of the others escape? he mumbled. Two did. Ben, Leah, and Simon were killed outright, and the rest of us are here. True martyrs, those three, steadfast to the end. Daniel felt the tears welling up in his eyes. It wasn't long before several uniformed guards unlocked the cell and took five prisoners away. An hour later, they returned and took five more. Daniel, his three companions, and one other prisoner were taken next. The guards led them to a gloomy chamber furnished with ominous-looking devices. Daniel recognized some of them. A rack, a whipping post, and a blood-stained table where he knew prisoners were slowly eviscerated. A guard grabbed him and forced him to the post. They stripped off his clothes, chained his wrists high above his head, and flogged him with metal-studded whips 
until his back was shredded nearly to the bone. They laid another prisoner across a rack with his hands and feet bound, and the ropes stretched taut until his joints popped. The man cried out in agony. The other three were held in chains, forced to watch as they awaited their turn. Unable to stand, Daniel and his companion were dragged out of the chamber to an enclosed yard where an executioner stood awaiting with an axe in hand. The man's foot rested on a wooden block with reddish-brown streaks straining its side. Two soldiers stepped forward to deliver Daniel to the block, but he insisted that he would stand and walk himself. As he approached the block, he began to sing, softly at first, but with growing volume and feeling. It was an old song he learned from his companions at the exchange. O victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. Then he knelt, placed his head on the block, and uttered a prayer as the executioner raised his axe. A moment later, Daniel arose from his kneeling position, feeling no pain. He looked around him and saw to his amazement that he stood beside a huge altar shaped like the one he'd seen pictured in Solomon's temple. Only this one was made of pure, shimmering gold. Standing with him were many of his Jewish Christian friends and other believers who had been martyred before him, including the three who had been killed in the attempted escape from the exchange. As he gazed around him in awe, his three cellmates arrived and stood beside him, looking healthy and whole. Even as he basked in the glory of this place, Daniel couldn't help but feel a stab of pain as he remembered the suffering the Christians were still facing on earth. As if with one voice, he and his fellow martyrs cried, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? A voice answered, beautiful and resonant as rolling thunder, urging them to take a well-earned rest as they waited a little while longer. The suffering of their fellow servants would soon cease. At that moment, Daniel felt something being draped over his shoulders. It was a magnificent robe, dazzling white and fringed with gold. All his questions melted away as he rested, confident that all was well in the mighty hands of his Lord and Savior. The scripture behind. All right, that's it. There you go. Unless you want to sit and listen more. But the uh, interesting uh, depiction of events that, uh, as the author had, uh, obviously used some creative license there. I'm not sure how many, if that percentage of lawyers will actually be raptured or not, but uh, that remains to be seen. The uh, you may need an outline that didn't get an outline. You may need one. Uh, Dave, you got some back there. Do you mind? Put your hand up for a minute, and he'll bring them to you. Uh, if you want to turn to Revelation six, so as you're turning there, and as uh, Dave is uh, making his way up to uh, hand out those outlines, it's interesting to note. You know, as we um, hear the depiction of 
the, the attack on the Jewish people. Um, and so a question for you is, is the attack on the Jewish people, is that something new? Yes or no? No, uh, that's something that's been going on really since the introduction of the Jewish people, right? And so let's kind of just take a second as, as he's passing us out. I'm going to read um, just some, as we think about the history of the Jewish people, when Pharaoh tried to destroy all male children born to Hebrew women. Remember that? Haman schemed to destroy all Jews, and Esther had to step in. Um, in the second century, if uh, they did not bow to the Zeus, they were murdered. Herod tried to destroy Jesus by slaughtering all the infant boys in Bethlehem. We see in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. Acts 12, James is executed. Uh, many Roman Christians suffered in the arenas. Uh, medieval believers endured the Inquisition. The Huguenots and the Protestants were massacred or exiled during the Reformation. Hundreds of Chinese believers lost their life during the Boxer Rebellions. Russian Christians were sent to slave camps or to Siberia. Uh, then we obviously know of the history of Hitler's persecution on the Jews. There's an interesting quote from Adolf Eichmann that said this, expressing his hatred for Jews. He said, I shall leap into my grave laughing. For the thought that I have five million human lives on my conscience is to me a source of inordinate satisfaction. You, can you imagine the hardness of someone's heart, not only to do the deeds that he had done, but then to be thankful that he had the opportunity um, to do that? Um, and so before you get to, uh, we're going to get to Revelation 6, but let me, let me read a uh, really the persecution of the Jews uh, Moses prophesied about. And his prophecy, as we've read, has continued through Scripture, after Scripture, and then post uh, our rapture that we're going to be talking about tonight. So Deuteronomy chapter 28, 64 through 67, I'll read this. It says, Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from the end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you, you shall fear day and night, and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it were evening, at the evening you shall say, Oh, that it were morning, because of the fear which terrifies your heart, and because of the sight which your eyes see. It's interesting in that prophecy in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that, that there's been several periods of history where that text would be accurate, right? And then even as we're looking tonight in the future, that all, again, that text would also be accurate. Um, so it's not necessarily that prophecy for a one specific time, but it's a prophecy that's going to continually come true over, over the the course of history. So when we talk about this evening, the, the depiction that we were given is really most of that taken from Revelation chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 9 through 11. So let me take time to read it. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell 
on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was complete. Um, so if you have your outline here, we're just going to kind of walk through this, all right? And again, most of this is going to be pulled from uh, these few verses, and of course we'll supplement with some other text. But the first part of the outline says the context of the martyr. So at the, if you have the book, the title of the book is The Martyrs. Uh, I think that was the part that we were, as we listened to it, that, that uh, <clears throat> if you were listening carefully and you knew what he was saying, he said that, and then he started reading it. So what's the context of the martyrdom, or these verses in verses 9 through 11. Um, and, the, and so the context is that this is after the rapture, okay, so, uh, and during the tribulation period. Okay, so that's the context of those who are martyred that it's speaking of in verses 9 through, uh, 9 through 11 of when they will be murdered or martyred, okay? The context is during the tribulation period following the rapture of the church. So let's take a moment, and you, you might want to write this out. Some of you probably already know where we're headed, but First Thessalonians chapter number 4. And uh, you can take time to, read, uh, to turn there if you want, but First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, is, is where we understand this understanding of the rapture. Right? So when the uh, depiction that, that they were reading there or the book gives is the... Uh, the believers that all of a sudden, the, the uh, sudden disappearance of people all over. Uh, it's interesting to me to just kind of a side note in my own thinking of as he was depicting that he said Great Britain would be uh, come to power first or they kind of got everything together first. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of fulfillment prophecy in that. But also to think that how most of Europe is a, is a post-Christian nation. And thus, if it is a post-Christian nation and then the rapture takes place that takes Christians out, then it stands to reason that that part of the country would, would suffer less catastrophic loss than other parts of the world. Um, is that, are you tracking with me? So 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. Verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And we read this last week. Again, as mentioned, that it seems like this is one of the familiar passages to read at a funeral, at a graveside. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. <clears throat> then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Okay, so there's the idea or the understanding of that word being snatched away. Uh, the Latin word for that is rapio, which is where we got the word rapture, all right? So the word actual rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, did I say it wrong? Sorry. 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's verse 17. And then we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so as we, as a church, and as we interpret Scripture, then really the next um, big event on the end times calendar is going to be what? 
the rapture, the rapture of the church. That's what we are waiting. So that's kind of what we've, we've heard depicted. Um, and, and so then what we've also heard in this and what, we, what you see in Scripture and even in these verses 9 through 11 is that during that seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be many, many people that come to Christ, and specifically many Jews who come to Christ. And I think there's going to be um, three different ways that that's going to happen. Okay? The first one is uh, the two witnesses that are mentioned, if you want to write a side note, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. We will get to those later, so we're just kind of uh, summarizing that at this point. But the two witnesses will be one of the greatest ways that people will come to know Christ and surrender their life to Christ during the tribulation period. Uh, the second way would be the 144,000 uh, Jews, the evangelists, and that's mentioned in Revelation 7, verse 4. Again, we'll spend a week talking about them, all right? So, um, again, if you're tracking with the title of the book, Agents of the Apocalypse, we're talking, uh, we talked about the exile, John, last week, the martyrs this week, and so at some point we'll have the two witnesses, the 144,000. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'm, that's why we're just flying over those particular areas uh, tonight. And then I think the third reason, which was mentioned uh, depicted, is that there'll be Bibles everywhere, right? And there's going to be, uh, um, I think there's going to be a thirst for knowledge. Like, what happened? Uh, how did this happen? What happened? What took place? And, and there's going to be, I would think, some obvious um, assumptions from people, if just as it was depicted here, that if all the... Christians are gone, what did they know that we didn't know? And what were they reading that we weren't reading, right? And so there's going to be a lot of people that pick up a Bible maybe for the first time and say, what, what's in, what was I missing? What did I miss? Um, and so, but also during the tribulation period, not only will many come to faith, but many will be killed for their faith. Uh, there'll be a point in that tribulation period where the, in order to have, in order to, to place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's, it's basically a death sentence. Either bow to the God who rules the earth or give your life up. That's, that's going to be. So um, Revelation 12, 11 says, They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. In other words, they were willing to die for their faith. And so I'm thankful that currently in my situation, your situation, uh, that's not placed upon us right now, is it? Um, that, that we're not, our life is not in danger because we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and then also Zechariah 13, 8 through 9. I'm going to read it. You might want to write this down um, because I don't know if you'll have time to turn there. But Zechariah 13, 8 through 9. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Again, talking about the, the Jews through the tribulation period. So context, if you're taking notes on the outline, uh, really the context is the tribulation following the rapture. Right? So I said all that just to give you that cliff note right there, right? Tribulation following the rapture. 
The next one on your outline says the cause of their martyrdom. Verse number 9 in our text, Revelation 6, says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Uh, most, most scholars said that, that that understanding of that, the testimony which they held, is not just um, like what we would think of testimony, but it's more of not just the testimony they held, but the message that they gave. Okay, And the message that they gave is what? A message of repentance. Um, just as our message today is a message of what? Repentance. Um, and, and again, it says here, these tribulation preachers would join a, a long line of courageous prophets who spoke out against wickedness in their generation. Whether it was, uh, remember in 1 Samuel chapter 3 when, when Samuel had to tell Eli uh, bad news, right? To prophesy the bad news. Uh, and so all throughout Scripture you're going to see prophets who have prophesied and then also had a message of repentance. And when Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 24, when he was uh, right before his ascension, he's talking to his disciples. This is what he said, Luke 24, verse 47. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The message that we have that, that our church must preach is the message of what? Repentance. And if, if the church, if this church fails and stops to preach a message of calling for people to repent of their sins, then what should you probably do? Find another church, right? Yeah, or get rid of said person who's not preaching that, right? And, and, and to understand that, and we talked about uh, this way back on Easter, is that the good news of the gospel really isn't good news without the bad news of the gospel, right? So you can't really be saved and you can't really be found until you're first acknowledged you're what? You're lost and that you need salvation, right? And so the message of repentance has to be preached. If not, what's the point of church, right? What's it's just to feel good about ourselves, right? So uh, the cause of their uh, martyrdom is because they're preaching repentance, uh, the next one here, number three, the consequence of their martyrdom. Uh, verse nine, again, we opened his, the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony. And so what is that, what is that trying to signify under the altar? Let me read a few bullet points on that. It symbolizes in the Old Testament where the blood of the sacrifice was poured out. It also symbolizes in this case they were slain or slaughtered. To the world they were destroyed, but to God they were offered as a sacrifice to Him. They gave their lives for the Lord, and the Lord looked upon them as His. They are His murderers. It says, being under the altar of God pictures the martyrs as having sacrificed their blood, their life for Christ. And again, I would say, aren't, aren't you thankful that currently in our situation that we don't have to give our life as a sacrifice. But when you think about us giving our life as a sacrifice, where in the New Testament does it talk about us in our current situation as current believers giving our life up as a sacrifice? Somebody, anybody, just a biblical scholar, want to let us know? All right, present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. 
A question maybe to wrestle with then is, what's more difficult to be a living sacrifice or a one-time decision of giving your life up? Who would say living? Who would say deading? I don't know how to word that one. <laughs> All right. Who has no clue? Not voting. Which is a longer process? We, we often look at, uh, look at salvation and surrender. Um, I, I choose to follow God as a one-time decision. But it's daily, isn't it? Daily we're to take up what? A cross. And if you're taking up your cross, where are you going? To die. Daily take up your cross and die to what? self. So a living sacrifice is maybe an oxymoron, right? Because to prevent myself a living sacrifice, what am I really doing? I'm dying to myself. I'm going to live for him. Um, so those of you who voted or didn't vote, I would say a living sacrifice is much more, much more difficult because it's continual. It's continual. So the context the consequence and uh, the cause, the fourth one here, the cry of their martyrdom. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And in, the, in their prayer, basically, their call to the Lord for vengeance, to avenge their blood, also in this is gives us a little understanding of context of what, what time period this is. Okay, so it doesn't seem to, um, at least if without the help of scholars, I would not figure out that there's context here. I'll put it that way. And the context being, so their cry is for vengeance to God for their blood. Now, in the New Testament age, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what was his cry to God for the people? Forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? When Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter number 7, what was his cry to God for the people who were killing him? Forgiveness. In the current church age, also known as the day of grace or the age of grace, what is our prayer for those who persecute believers. Maybe I'll rephrase that. What should our prayer be? <laughs> Forgiveness. Pray for them who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21. Thank you, Jimmy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceable with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I repay, says the Lord. So there's a time of vengeance, isn't it? And who is bringing the vengeance? The Lord is, not you, not me. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with what? Good. And so the, the context or the, the, the message of their prayer really gives us a context that this is post the church age, post the day or age of grace. All right. So again, going back to the first point, the context is after the rapture and in the tribulation uh, period. And, and so uh, I love this quote again regarding their prayer for vengeance. Uh, by uh, Lewis Talbot, and he says this, A man prays according to the attitude of God is taking toward the world in the dispensation in which he lives. So again, what's the attitude God has toward the lost world currently? Grace. What does 2 Peter 3.9 say? He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to this word again. Repentance. Right? And so if that's the attitude and prayer of God, this is really a tough question. What should your attitude be? Right? Repentance. Preaching repentance. Praying for grace. All right? So we've got to hurry. We're running out of time. The comfort of the martyrdom. All right? Verse 11 is, says, Then a white robe was given to each, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer and until both of the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were as they were completed, right? So there's uh, this prayer, God have vengeance, and the response is not yet. Okay, it's coming, right? So during this period of waiting for the vengeance, he says they're, they're given a refuge, right? Um, the next thing, uh, I want to read a quote real quick again. This is kind of uh, a little more information on the thought of them being under the altar, it says, under the altar is to be covered in the sight of God by the merit which Jesus Christ provided in dying on the cross. It's a figure that speaks of justification. These martyred witnesses are covered by the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they take refuge in Christ. The next one is they're given a robe, and the robe is a symbol of what? Righteousness. Revelations 19, verse 8. Uh, they also are given rest. Again, it says, Rest for a while. Vengeance is coming, all right? So they're giving refuge, a robe, and a rest. Revelations 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works will follow them. The last one there is they're given a retribution, all right? So again, they've asked for vengeance, not yet, take rest, but guess what? Revelations 14, 17 through 20, there is vengeance that's going to take place, all right? For sake of time, we won't, won't read that, but you can write it down. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 17 through 20. And the last one is they're given a reward. So what is the reward for their martyrdom? Revelations 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. It's a place of authority. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what's the reward of the martyrs? who uh, will have to take a stand for their faith during the tribulation period. They'll reign with Christ during the millennial reign, all right? So that's Revelations 20, verse 4. All right, so number six, the courage of martyrdom. 
Here's an interesting uh, fact. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Did you hear that? More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Does that somewhat blow your mind to hear that statement? Because we don't face that, do we? Christians are persecuted in more than 65 of the world's 193 countries. 65 of the world's 193 countries. More than 1 million of the 1.5 million Christians in Iraq have fled the country in the past 10 years. Do you think, so we just talked about the living sacrifice. And we're disconnected from those who uh, currently die for their faith, aren't we? We're just disconnected from that. Would you have the courage to die for your faith? We all hope so, right? We all hope so. Second Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. We all do suffer persecution, don't we? I mean, the truth is... <laughs> What we face probably shouldn't be termed persecution, but, but it is. Daniel 3, 17 and through 18, 16 through 18, actually. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. Don't you love that statement? You know, you remember the story like the king was going to give him a second chance? I'll let you go bow to the image. It's the same picture that's going to happen in the tribulation period, right? Bow to the image or die. That's going to be it. Claim your loyalty to uh, the Lord on earth or to your God in heaven. And then they said, but if not... So I love verse, let me read verse 17 again. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Do you believe that? But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor we worship the golden image which you have set up. And again, the if not was not if not if God's not able. That was not what the question was, right? It was if he chooses not, because God is able. That was their declarative statement. Our God is able to save us. He's able to deliver us. Do you believe that God's able to deliver you? Do you believe one day he will deliver you? Aren't you thankful you have that hope? That's what 1 Thessalonians talks about. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And I wonder then why, um, if you're like me, you, you hear that, and, and doesn't it bring this sense of like thankfulness that God has already delivered you? 
And Ephesians talks about that we're sealed under the day of redemption. It's already a done deal, right? If you've given your life to Christ, you're already sealed to the day of redemption. Yes? Do you ever wonder then why that message doesn't come out of us easier and more often? That it doesn't... I think you're probably like me that when you think about the what Jesus did, and you think about the end times, and, and for a lot of you, it just brings fear, right? And then you realize, but I'm in Christ, and I, I'm going to be redeemed from all that, right? And that brings, doesn't that bring peace and joy and happiness and think, why? If it brings so much good emotion in us, why does that not propel us to share that more? To be that living sacrifice. I'm not sure if I, I, I mean, I can't answer it for you. I'm, I'm not 100% sure I can even answer it for myself at this point. But if studying the end times prophecy doesn't bring you to the point of wanting to share your faith more, then there's no point in studying it. Because studying the end time prophecy as a believer just reminds us that we win. And shouldn't that make you excited? And don't you want other people to be on the winning team? Let's share our faith. Let's not just enjoy the the good feeling we have because we're resting in the the redemption of Christ. Let's share that with others. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this night. Lord, I thank you for uh, your word that you've preserved for us. The revelation of Jesus to us. Lord, help us as we dig into it and begin to Continue to study, Lord, that it would not just be for knowledge's sake. Lord, that the the reminder and the reality of victory in Jesus would be something we would share. If it's really that important to us, we would share it. Give us boldness, give us faith, give us courage. In your name we pray, amen.